good, which is a good thing, right? So uh, we're uh, finishing up the series on comebacks, and uh, if you've ever had a setback, you know that you need a comeback. Can I get a witness? Anybody have a setback? No, no one? Nobody's ever had a setback? What is a setback? When something happens to you and sets you back, that's a setback, all right? So you're going in a direction or you're just kind of hanging out and something happens to you and it sets you back. It moves you in the wrong direction. You want to go that way and it moves you that way, all right? So uh, before, say this with me, before Jesus creates the platform, he creates the person, a lot of you, you have hopes, you have dreams. I'm just going to take a little moment here to talk to some of you because I think this is important. I feel like the Lord put this on my heart. Um, you know, we're talking about a little bit. De- we're a big destiny, purpose-driven church uh, in, in God's economy. And uh, so it, a lot of you, you get vision, you get direction, you, get, you feel like the Lord's spoken something over you. You feel like you've been born for a reason. You're, you're hungry for something significant, and you just can't seem, you wonder, why is this not happening to me? Why has this not come? Why hasn't the dream been realized? Why hasn't the vision come? Because God creates the person before he creates the platform. And a lot of times what he's doing is you're going through difficulties, you're going through situations, you're going through circumstances, and through those changes and those transformations, Jesus is causing them, but he will use them. And so what, uh, just real quick on discovering your purpose um, or, or understanding purpose and destiny, you're all, what I want you to understand, let's say this together, I am created on purpose with a purpose. Say, I don't feel like that. It doesn't matter what you feel like. I just gave you what's true. So that, that's not my reality. Well, reality and truth are two different things. The truth is you're created on purpose with a purpose. And in order for you to, to actualize your purpose, the first thing you got to do is discover your purpose. Then you have to develop yourself towards that purpose. And then you have to wait for the timing and the opportunity and recognize the moment of your purpose. You understand that? Everything has a time and a season attached to it. God does a lot of time dating. Everything's t- in the fullness of the dispensation of the time. When the time was just right. God did this, or this thing began to happen. And so the opportunity presents itself, and you have to be ready for that. You have to prepare for the moment and recognize it. Um, some of you guys, it's funny, there's an article about it today. Um, uh, I don't know basketball fans out there, but LeBron James, who has been to the title game many, many times, uh, commented a while back ago, he commented, he made this comment when he was with uh, the Cavaliers. He said, the problem with, young, with the young guys is that they fail to recognize the moment that they're in. They don't understand the moment that they find themselves in. And it's funny, today I was just, I don't know, I get Google updates, and my son's really into that, so he's like, I'm not like, I'm not like, I'm not like a basketball geek. My son is. My son's like a crazy geek. So in order to bond with my son, you understand? You try to, so ladies, this is a great way. If you understand men, one of the best things to do is like what he likes, right? So guys like guys that like what they like, don't we, guys? Right? We bond over, we bond over silly things. And so, um, you know, I try to follow basketball and I try to, I mean, I'm not like a geek. Like, I mean, this, my son blows me away. Like, he names these off crazy players and I, don't, I can't even do it. And he'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, he played for Milwaukee and they traded him to Denver and now he's in you know, I mean, he's like, he knows all these crazy details about basketball. So anyway, I get basketball updates and I was just reading this morning about LeBron James and he was just saying, you know, these young guys on this team don't understand the moment. We're going to miss the playoffs if they don't, you know, pull it together. And so one of the things that happens with us as, as believers is we, we have to recognize the moments that we find ourselves in. And we have to realize that every moment or everything that happens, even though it may be a negative situation, it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to prove something. It's an opportunity to be faithful. But it's also not just an opportunity to prove and to be faithful. Where's Elliot? Is he around here? Oh, never mind. All right. Are the, okay, never mind. Are the, are the lights on the, the right uh, thing? They look a little pink. Anyway, just maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. No, not definitely not that. Just hit the, hit the bright white. There you go. That's it. There you go. And make sure the, 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 the intensity is, there's like a slide bar at the top. I don't know if you can see that. Anyway, modern technology. <laughs> 
you have to recognize the moment that you find yourself in. You have to realize that every moment is an opportunity, and, and God will use even the most difficult moments. God is more committed to the vision over your life oftentimes than you are. He's not going to work any harder than you, but he is more committed to the vision over your life than you are. And what you have to, he is in, in totally vested in it. He's all in on it. And what you have to do is realize that God is so vested in the dream that even the negative things that happen to me will not permanently disqualify me or take me off course. You can reset. You have to prepare for and recognize the moment. And this is going to matter to some of you because this is important. And this kind of plays in the culture. And I'm going to set it up with, I'm going to set up the, the person that we're going to talk about. But I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I felt like this is a, this is a theme that we, we need to understand. Is that America's a media culture. I don't know if you're aware of that. We're media-driven. Right? We're media, 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 media. And because we're a media culture, that makes us a youth culture. And because we're a youth culture, that makes us a disposable culture. Okay? And there's nobody over, if you even look in churches, churches have become more media-centric. And in their media-centric, they've become youth-driven. And they've become not just youth-driven, they've become disposable in the, in the things that, that they do. There's nobody over the age of 35 on a worship team anymore. I mean, here, we don't care. But, like, you know, we just want the glory and the presence of God. But most churches, it's, it's not even so much about the substance or the content. It's about the appearance. We want young, good-looking people that can jump up and down and f- pump their fist in the air, you know, while the smoke machines turn and the, sm- and the, the, lights, go, the, the lights go crazy. And okay, if you're into that, that's fine. But what you need to understand is that the kingdom is not youth-centric. The kingdom is not a, a youth culture, and it's not. And, and I'm going to explain that to you. Now, that's not to say that youth isn't valued, but what we end up doing is we end up sacrificing wisdom for the expense of appearance. All show and no go, as they would say back in the day. And it's not just that. What ends up happening is, is, is this is so prevalent in our society that we have 30-year-old kids who want to kill themselves because they're not a millionaire at 30. You guys know what I'm talking about? There are people who are literally depressed because they're not, they're not uh, Mark Zuckerberg at 30 years old, you know, or they're not living in a mansion on the water and they don't have all, the, all of the trappings of life. This is how, this is how that mentality affects it. And to those of you that are here that, that like, have felt that way, what I would tell you is the game is long, ladies and gentlemen. You know, everybody plays short, but the kingdom plays the long game. And if you want to prosper from a kingdom standpoint and you want to prosper from a God's vision standpoint, you have to play the game long. And if you read the Bible, uh, what ends up happening is the most powerful stories in Scripture happened on the backside of the people's lives. It didn't happen on the front end. The kingdom doesn't value. Just, this is the way the, the Hebrew culture was. If you were under, you couldn't even be in a council. You couldn't be in a ministry council unless you were 30 years old. And if you were 30 and you were the youngest person in the room, you were not allowed to contribute to the conversation. You had to sit down and shut up. The only thing you were allowed to do was ask questions. That's it. So if they didn't ask you your opinion. You sat with a council of elders. This was how the, this was how the, the Hebraic culture was set up. They were set up that way. And the, the, the point was is that they valued life experience and they valued knowledge. And this, this, and, and what I'm trying to tell you is that, that like a lot of you, you find yourself hopeless or God gave me a vision when I was 17 and I'm 30 now and I don't even have it anymore. Or I had this dream when I was a kid and now I'm, I'm 26 and I don't have it anymore. Or God gave me this vision when I was in my twenties and now I'm 50 and it still hasn't come to pass. What I'm trying to tell you is there's hope, right? The game's long. Amen. The game, come on. The game is long. I guess this isn't ministry. It's just, the game is long. <laughs> Noah. Okay, can we talk about Noah? Significant story. Didn't happen on the front side of his life. Happened on the back side. Moses. Didn't happen on the front side of his life. Moses actually jacked up the first 40 years. He, he, 40, he makes a huge mistake, goes, lives under a rock for 40. God didn't even, he didn't even come back to his senses for 40 years. Abraham didn't happen on the front side. Abraham's life is marked by a series of mistakes when he was young. Nothing but stupid decisions, disobedient and stupid decisions, Abraham. But he's the father of faith, Kevin. Yeah, read the story. He wasn't always the father of faith. He made stupid decisions. He made disobedient decisions. 
You have Joseph. We're going to talk about Joseph this morning. Joseph, Joseph gets a vision at 17 years old, and it takes almost 30 years old. He was almost, takes almost 30 years for the vision God gave him to actually come to pass. And it only came to pass through a series of extremely difficult situations because God builds the man or builds the person before he builds the platform. It's what he does. A lot of you, the delays that are happening in your life, it might be a series of bad choices or a series of circumstantial events. That may be true. But in the process, what the Lord is doing is he is building you in order that he can put you on a platform or he can put you into the thing that he wants to give you the most. God wants to give it to you. He wants to have it to you, but he cannot give it to you in your current state. He can't. It is better to get something on the backside and be able to hold it than to get it on the front side in your youth and lose it halfway down the trail. That happens to so many people. They, may, they, might, they bloom early. They get, you don't want to peak in high school. I tell my son this all the time. That is not the place you want to be peaking. Some of you know people, and they're still living like they're in high school because that was the apex of their life. That was when they were the most popular, the best looking. They still wear the hairstyle. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, rocking the 90s music. That's not where you want to peak. Paul, Paul's another guy, screwed up, messed up. He basically built his life completely wrong. Can you imagine? You build this amazing life only to realize everything I have done has been wrong. And he had to take, take a step back, take three years, completely dismantle everything that he had built. He dismantled everything that he had built because he, the front side of his life was spent building it wrong. And he built it the right way on the second side of his life. And we know the world knows him today because that's what happened. The Apostle John, right? Can we talk about this guy? Right? So we have the Apostle John. He's known for the Gospel of John. He's known for the epistles or the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And he's known for the book of Revelation. He, he didn't write any of that until he was in his 80s. Okay? The thing that John's known for didn't happen when he was 20. Didn't happen when he was 30. Didn't happen when he was 40. Didn't happen when he was 50. The brother's 80 years old before he contributed anything of significant value that the world would remember him from. And so, exactly. And again, what you have to understand, we're, the, we're a kingdom people, and we have to have a kingdom mentality. This culture and the world will tell you that you're too old, that your time has passed. And every message within our society, within our culture, tells you that. Tells you that. It tells the kid in college that you gotta be making $150,000 before you're 30 or you're nothing. You know, you gotta have all of these things before you're this age or you're nothing. Well, who told you that? The game's long. And you have to, the kingdom, the kingdom mentality is not the culture's mentality. And you have to realize that what God has promised you, he will be faithful to. But you have to play the game long. You can't play short. What you end up doing when you play short with a vision is that you make stupid decisions because you want it sooner than you should have it. And I'm telling you, you know, my wife's told me this several times, you know, I mean, we've watched people, particularly in ministry, get shipwrecked and train wrecked. I mean, they go up like a rocket, you know? And some of you, you know, career people that are the same way, or you know, you know, like, how in the world does that happen? I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years. This person walks in the door and it just blows up. How in the world does that happen? How does it happen? And most of the time they, they, they get it early, but they don't have the character to sustain it. Or they don't have the character to hold it. It's better to finish well than it is to, to lose it halfway down the lane. And so I'm trying to inject hope into you this morning. Right? So I'm going to give you this one. So we're going to, go, we're going to, we're going to, get, we're going to get a little heady right, here this morning. Right? So we're going to quote the Journal of Nature. Right? So the Journal of Nature 2010. So all your greenies out there should be like, yes, tell us about the Journal of Nature. They studied 400 species of trees that live past the age of 75. 673,000 trees in 16 countries were studied. The purpose was they wanted to know the value of old growth trees and what their, what their relationship was to the forest. So, because the idea was that we need to cleanse the forests and we need to get rid of all the old growth so that the new growth can come, into, come to pass. And so that, that was, you know, okay, we need to get rid of all the old people, okay? Anybody over the age of 40, there's the door, right? 
it's getting quiet, right? So some of you know that. Jobs are that way. I mean, it's crazy what we, what we do. And we're getting rid of the greatest capital that we have. We're getting rid of the experience, the wealth of knowledge and experience. And what they found is, is that, uh, 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 what they found is, is that uh, trees do not reach their potential. These species of trees that they studied that live beyond this certain age, they don't even reach their potential until they're 50 years old. So they don't even begin to maximize their growth potential, and they don't even begin to maximize their productivity as far as seed production and as far as carbon intake. They don't even maximize that until they're past the age of 50. So some of you, you're 25 years old. You're not even, you're not even halfway there. You're not even halfway to your potential. They grow th trees over the age of 50 grow 33% faster. So their growth goes exponential past a certain age. They, they compose, this is crazy statistic, 2% of the total forest mass. So old growth trees beyond the age of 75, that's in tree life, that's pretty significant. Two, old growth trees beyond the age of 75 represent 2% of Earth's total forest mass, yet contribute 25% to the world's, to the world's uh, forest health. So they represent 2% of the entire tree population, yet without them, 25% of the world's uh, forest production would drop. And what do they relate that to? They relate that to seed production or reproductivity, and they relate it to carbon intake. Trees breathe in carbon dioxide, right? And breathe out oxygen, right? We breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide, right? So more or less. So we need trees. They're important. Old growth trees, this is the lady Emily Hines. I'm going to make a point out of it. You're like, what in the world do trees have to do with what you're talking about this morning? I have a point, okay? Just w wait for it. Old growth trees, pray, this is Emily Hines, who's one of the authors. She said, old growth trees play a disproportionate role in overall forest health. And more important, and they are more important than we have considered. This debunks the theory that old growth trees are less productive. It's as if the all-stars of the forest are a bunch of 90-year-olds. Say, so well, what, is, what in the world does that have to do with the gospel? And what does that have to do with the kingdom? Well, it has a lot to do with it because God relates to his people as trees. If you don't understand prophetic significance, he calls us oaks of righteousness. The olive tree, the fig tree, very significant. Jesus is like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Okay, so it's, there's a lot of tree analogy with the almond tree, the prophetic branch, all of these things that J Jesus is called the branch, okay, from the tree of David. So there's a lot of relationship to trees in the Old Testament. There's something called a lulav. Any of you that are Hebrew or knows anything about it, there's a lulav. These, these, if you ever see these Hasidics walking around, they got like a branch in their hand and they got a, a lemon or a citrus. You're like, what in the world is that all about? Well, I'm going to tell you. There's four species is what they represent. And what it is is it's significant to the Hebrew people. It means, so you have four, you have a myrtle. I, got, I had to write that. I know this, but I, I just want to make sure I wrote it down. You have a myrtle, you have a palm, you have a willow, and you have a citrus. One has fragrance and no fruit. One has fruit and no fragrance. One has no fruit, no fragrance. And one has fruit and fragrance. And so the idea was knowledge and productivity. So there, and what God was showing them is that, which one are you? Are you those, are you of my people that have no knowledge and no productivity, no fragrance, no fruit? Are you those that have fragrance, but you don't have fruit? You have lots of knowledge, but you don't do anything with it? Are you those that bear fruit, but you're completely ignorant with knowledge? Or are you the one who actually has knowledge and fruit? So God, again, was relating to his people in the form of trees, do you understand the significance here? So I'm doing all of that again to bring you back to this point to tell you that the game is long and that vision takes time and that purpose takes time. And what happens is, is that we tend to give up along the way. And I'm telling you, man, this is a big problem. It's a problem in our culture and it's a problem in churches. And a lot of Christians just say, well, my time's passed. Yeah, that's over with. You know, I mean, who told you that? Who told you that? This event, there was like thousands of people going on up in Orlando, and I was talking to my son about it, and I told him, I said, you know the guy who organized that is, 70, is in his 70s? Yeah, Lou Engel. It wasn't some 20-something who put that conference together. It was a guy in his 70s. And here's a guy, he's not looking to just crawl across the finish line. He's on a dead sprint, right? And he's trying to transfer 
from fathers to sons. That's what revival is. I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers. Father, sons, dogs, you know, the whole family aspect. But it's a partnership of generations. That's what revival is. Revival is never exclusive of one generation at the expense of the other. It's never the wise expenditures of the young, the young expending, expending the old. It's never that way. It's a partnership. It's an impartation. It's a passing. It's a, it's a development. And so, you know, I was just telling my son, he was at the thing, and I said, you know, he was tell, just talking to me about it, and I told him, I said, hey, I just want you to let you know. He's like, it was a little old-timey, but he said a lot, most of the stuff was really good. You know, my son, old-timey. You know, and I'm like, yeah, but he said most of it, most of it was really good. And, and I told him, I said, look, a lot of these guys have been serving the Lord for a long time. You know, they have something to add. They have something to, they have value. They have something they want to impart. And I said, and the guy that put it on is in his 70s. And that's no small thing, what the guy did. So again, it's significant. And so here I want to show you Joseph, who had it all at 17 years old. The brothers got it all. Like the dude won the lottery at birth, Right? If you wanted the life of one guy, particularly under the age of 20, you wanted Joseph's life. You did. He was born into a rich family, okay? Wealthy family. He was the firstborn son of the favored wife. So his father had a couple of wives. He had a few wives. I'm not going to get into all that and the reasons for it. But the point was, is that his father had a favorite. And of the favorite, Joseph was the firstborn, which meant he more than was in, he had inherited rights that the other brothers didn't because of that. So he's extremely privileged. And it says this. All right, there we go. So we're back in action. He just told me, he's like, man, you might want to replace your batteries. I'm like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> so Joseph's born and he wins the lottery. And it says this, wealthy family, wealthy things. Says, this is the account of Jacob and his descendants. Joseph was 17 years old and he tended the father's, his father's flock while he was helping the sons, his sons, the, the sons of uh, two of his father's wives. His father had four wives. I know it's hard for me to not have to explain that, but just leave that for another time. Uh, so he's out in the field. Joseph's out in the field, and he's helping. He's serving his father. His father had a lot of resources. His father had fields. His father had sheep. And so the sons would go out and take care of the father's business. And while he's out in the fields, he's out there working with his brothers. And every day, Joseph would come back. Joseph didn't really like to work, right? So I'm going to give you a perspective of Joseph that you probably have never heard, but it's in the Hebrew narrative. We just don't like to look at it, right? And so Joseph probably had soft hands. He didn't like to work. He liked it easy. He knew his old man had money. He's like, why do I have to go out here and sweat when my dad's like blinging it? You know, this isn't right. And so he would go home and he would come home from the field and he would talk to his dad and he would always bring a bad report about his brothers. Dad, I, you can't send me out in the field anymore. I can't do this anymore. You know, Judah's smoking cigarettes out behind the rock. You know, I mean, Reuben's chasing girls. He's chasing all the neighborhood girls. Simeon and Levi, they keep picking fights. You know, they're like brawling out there. I mean, come on, you can't send me out there. Naphtali keeps throwing dirt balls at me. I mean, you really, you can't keep putting me out there in that environment. And he kept bringing a bad report back to his father. And so his father pretty much tells him he doesn't have to go to work anymore. You, from this point, you never see Joseph in the field working with his brothers ever again. And so his dad, he goes and tells his dad that. And so pretty much what it looks like is his old man gives him a platinum card and said, hey, you know what, here, just go down and, you know, nurse yourself. Go down. I want you to go downtown and I want you to, you know, go to the store and I want you to buy yourself a really beautiful robe, you know, down there and, you know, check it out and make sure. And so Joseph takes the card and goes down to Versace and buys himself a blazing full-on color robe and he wears it, right? Throws in a pair of Gucci slides. He's good. Right? And so his brothers come home and they see this coat of many colors on him and he's walking around. Where'd you get that? Oh, the old man bought it for me. Yeah, you like it? Check these out. Throws on his Ray-Bans, you know. 
and his brothers burned. And then not only that, he comes home one day, and so Joseph coming from the pool, my tie in his hand, blazing robe on, Speedos, Gucci slides, Ray-Bans, comes up to his brothers, hey, how'd your day go? Oh, yeah, that's cool. Let me tell you about my day. I was lounging out here by the pool, and I had a couple of dreams, and when I took a nap, man, and I had a couple of dreams, and I really want to share these dreams with you guys. First dream, we were out in the field, and my stalk rose higher than all your stalks, and I saw your stalks bowing down to me. That's a cool dream, right? And they're kind of like, okay. And he goes, and the second dream was cool as that. I saw the sun, the moon, and the and 11 stars bowing down to me too. What an amazing dream. And his brothers began to burn with anger against him. Can you imagine? Okay, you're out there, you're coming home, it's blood, sweat, tears, you're out there in the grind, running the factory, running the field, running, the, running your father's business, working, and this kid's over here lounging drinking Mai Tais and wearing a robe, right? You know what I'm talking about? And they're coming home, and now he's going to, not only is that bad enough, now he's going to tell them how much better. Oh, I've just had this spiritually, man, the encounters that I've been having have just been off the chart. Have you guys had any encounters lately? Well, let me tell you what I have encountered. Judah's probably going, yeah, I'd have encounters too if I wasn't working. (laughs) And so they burned with anger towards him. And he says this, he says, when, when he decided that his, his father described it to his brothers, his father scolded him and said, what kind of dreams have you dreamed? And, and he said, am I and your mother and brother supposed to come to you and bow down in front of you? They understood exactly what he was, what he was talking about. So the, first, the setback number one for Joseph, I want to talk to you about a few setbacks. I'm going to talk about how Joseph made it through and what the transformation happened in Joseph's life. Setback number, number one with Joseph is his ego. You want a major setback before you even get started? Joseph had an ego, self-entitled ego. You owe me. It's belong, he just, he just, he had an ego. He thought not only was he better, he didn't feel like he, you know, like he felt like he was owed, right? It's like I tell my son, you're owed nothing. Teenagers have this sense of entitlement. Can I get a witness, okay? You, they're owed. I'm owed. You owe me. I'm owed those Air Force Ones. I'm owed, you know, those skinny jeans. I'm owed that MCM bag. I'm owed that new iPhone. I'm owed. I'm owed a car. I'm like, dude, you're not owed anything. Let's just be clear. You know, you're not owed anything, anything. And Joseph's in what you're doing when you entitle your children that way and you don't teach them and set them up into an earning system because the world will deal them inevitable losses. And if you don't make your kids suffer inevitable losses, they're going to suck their thumb because life doesn't care about their feelings. Doesn't care. Life doesn't care. Life owes you nothing. Owes you nothing. There's a huge thing, and it'll happen because it happens to every generation. They call it a millennial shift. You know, the millennials going into the workplace, and everybody gives millennials a hard time. I just think we're more aware of it. It's that way in every generation. You have young people entering the workforce, and they're entitled. Well, the problem with this generation is that we've raised them. Everybody gets a participation trophy. You know? Everybody gets a trophy. (laughs) If your son doesn't win, you should take that trophy home and throw it right in the trash. And look at him and go, welcome to the real world. (laughs) Because that's what life's going to do. You don't get a participation trophy. You don't get a star for showing up. The world rewards success. The world rewards winners. There's called a hierarchy of competence. You rise because you're competent. You don't rise because everybody gets a trophy. There's no second place trophies, man. I mean, some of y'all, when you were kids, you didn't get second place trophies. There was one trophy, and it went to the champion. I tell you, I'm scarred from it when I was a kid. <laughs> I played baseball. I was into baseball my whole life. Loved baseball. It was my game. You know, we lose the title. I was in, like, peewee, man, little league. I remember it to this day. We lose three to one. Not only do we lose, we come in second, we don't get a trophy, we got to stand on the first baseline and watch the winning team get their trophy. We couldn't go to the dugout and go sulk and go get orange slices and suck our thumbs. We had to stand there because it was good sportsmanship and watch the team that just beat us get their trophy. Because that's the real world. It's inevitable losses. 
it will put you in a place. And Joseph didn't have any inevitable losses. Every time he had a problem, he went to dad, oh, dad, you can't make me work, you know. And Joseph didn't go, I got soft hands, dad, I can't, I can't work, you know. I mean, I mean, really, if you want me to work, let me go work on my tan, because I, I really, I don't want to work on the field. You know, have you seen me? I need to represent the family. I need to represent the family. That's why I need all these clothes. That's why I need the foam. That's why I need, I need, I need my tan to be working on. I need my haircut. Dad, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't represent the family like this. I have to have. No, I can't go to that hair salon. I have to go to that hair salon. I can't get a $20 haircut. I need a $120 haircut. It's getting quiet. <laughs> so Joseph's ego and his entitlement set him back in a big way. Parents, you're going to set your kids back in a big way if you give them ego and entitlement. If you give them, and I'm not talking about building self-confidence. Self-confidence and ego are two different worlds. Those are two different worlds. It's, I mean, have you seen my son? Does he, does he lack confidence in any way? Okay, if any of y'all know my son, he does not lack confidence in any way. He'll tell you what time it is whenever he, you know, I mean, he trusts me, he does it with me. And we've instead, I'm thinking, man, we put too much self-confidence in this kid. But as far as entitlement, he earns everything or he doesn't get it. Everything. Everything. Wants a new phone? Okay, you can have the new phone. You're going to have a job. Dad, I need you to finance the phone. I'm like, I'm financing nothing to you, dude, if you don't have a phone. Not happening. He's 20. He's almost 19 years old. He doesn't have a car. You know why? Because he can't pay for the insurance. And you know why? I'm not paying for the insurance. I'm telling you, you want to drive, get motivated, get off your AWS, and go get a job. <laughs> I live this. <laughs> I'm not paying it. 200 bucks a month just, for, you to, just for, you, for me to have the privilege of watching you drive the car? Wow, sign me up. And for you to take the keys and tell me when you're going and tell me when you're coming home? No. Not going to happen. Not happening. <laughs> Ego and entitlement will set your kids back. You can't go there. You can't, well, every parent's doing it. You know, I tell my son, my son's telling me about this kid in school. Uh, his parents are doctors, and, and uh, you know, and he's kind of like a party boy, he told me. And I'm like, well, yeah. And then he, they just gave him, he's like 17, and he got a brand new 2019, 18, whatever, Mercedes convertible. He's like just tricked out. I said, yeah. I said, but the kid's going to have a hard time when the real world, you know, he's, you're driving that car in high school. I said, when that kid's 35 years old, he's not going to be driving that car. If he's 28 years old, he's not going to be driving that car. You know, and if, that, if you're leading with that, bro, you know, I mean, that, you're going to have a hard time matching that because he's going to realize the real world is a totally different world. You know, he, his parents are probably paying at least a grand to keep that car on the road. And he, he's not going to see that. They're not going to support him forever. It's not going to happen. We have to teach our kids how it works and what it looks like. Joseph wasn't taught that. His old man just brought him in. Oh, you don't have to work. You don't want a job? Don't worry. Here, here's the platinum card. Go shopping. Get yourself a robe. Throw in those Gucci slides. It's not a problem. Go right ahead. And the second thing is now his father sends him out to see, the, to see his brothers. He goes out into the field and finds his brothers. And here's Joseph's new job. Work on your tan and go and tell me what's going on. Go and report to me on your brothers. So Joseph one day took a break from working on his tan, and the Lord told him, go, go check on your brothers. And he goes and check on his brothers, and he goes out into the field, and his brothers see him coming. Joseph, take the Mercedes, go out there and check on your brothers. Rolling up. Hey, what's up, guys? What's going on? How's work going? Yeah, yeah, Dad just sent me out here to check on you. I just want to see how you guys are doing. <laughs> Sweat coming down their faces. How we're doing? How we doing? We working. What you doing, you know? And so they saw him coming, and they said, oh, here comes the dreamer. And they said, let's find him, and let's throw him into the pit. Come on now, let's kill him, throw him into one of the cisterns. We'll tell the dad that the old man devoured him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. That's how much his brothers liked him. His brothers didn't like him at all. So clearly there's a reason. If 11 of them can get along, but they can get along with all themselves, but they can't get along with him... You don't think there's a personality conflict going on with Joseph? I mean, we're going to make Joseph out. Oh, Joseph was this servant. Joseph was this. Not in his early days, he was not. 
Not until he lost all of his entitlements and was forced into humility did Joseph become the man that God created him to be. He was not that person when he had all of his entitlements. He's not. Somebody said this, nothing will humble you faster than being forced into a position that you used to dismiss. Looking down on people that you view as beneath you and then being forced to occupy that position, nothing will humble you faster. <laughs> looking down on people for the clothes that they wear and the bag that they carry and the job that they hold and all that stuff, looking down on them, you need to be careful. <laughs> because life has a funny way of teaching you the lesson. Heaven sees. And so his brothers throw him into a pit, they sell him, for, they sell him to slavers, and they bring his robe back to his father. So his second setback, and some of you are going to identify with this one, he was rejected and sold out by those who were supposed to love him. Rejected and sold out by people who were supposed to love him. He was thrown into the pit of rejection. He was on his own. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've gone through a divorce. You've lost a business. You've encountered selfish, greedy people. You've been rejected by or abused by loved ones. People were supposed to love you, have rejected you. People were supposed to love you, have abused you. And you're left for no reason. There's no real reason why it happened to you. You're left with no resources. You have no means because everything's been taken from you. And you have no way out. And so this was Joseph's second setback. So his, his ego set him back. And then the rejection was another issue that he carried. The third issue, he goes down to Egypt. He's sold as a slave. He's, he gets purchased by an Egyptian army officer named Potiphar. So here's his third setback. He was forced to work a job and to work for an employer he didn't want to work for. Can I get a witness? <laughs> he was forced to work a job and to work for a person he did not want to work for. So Joseph goes from wearing robes and drinking Mai Tais and wearing Ray-Bans to scrubbing floors. Very humbling experience. While the Lord did not bring those charges against Joseph or bring that cause against Joseph, he would use it. And not only would he use it, he would watch. The first thing he would do is he would watch Joseph. And he was waiting, and he was watching and waiting. Because what God was doing to do, the weight that Joseph was to carry requires character. We, we go off on all of these crazy things about what God has for us. And you should, because most people don't. So we should celebrate what God has for you, because he's got amazing things for you. But really, what he's, what he's most interested in is creating you into a person that he can put that on. Because you in your current state can't carry the... He gives you a vision that's beyond you. Beyond you. It's greater than you. Do you know why? Because a great God has offered it to you. And he has call, he's called you. He said this. He's set greatness before you. And he's called you towards that greatness. But it will only happen with your partnership. And God is going to do some painful extractions in your life, not to hurt you, but to bring you to the place where he can give you what he most wants to give you, and he can give you what you want most. He wants to give you what you want most, and he, want, and he wants to, that is his desire. His greatest desire is to give you the desire that he's put in your heart, but he can't do it in your current state. We think Jesus is like, you know, the bellhop guy. He brings Burger King. He brings it our way and he brings it now. It doesn't work that way. He'll be faithful to the vision. But you have to be faithful to the process. This is why it doesn't happen. There is a process. You're working for an employer you don't want to work for. You're doing a job you don't want to work for. Are you faithful? Well, I don't need to be faithful. My boss is an idiot. Well, your boss isn't the idiot. Your boss is Jesus. That's the one who rewards you. Your promotion in the kingdom economy, again, it's kingdom gospel. It's a kingdom economy. The kingdom economy looks like this. We don't work in this world. We work from that world. And so your promotion relates to him. He relates to him. It's it. You begin to cry, Lord, I want a promotion. Lord, I went out of this job, Lord. And he'll give you that. He's, he will begin to shift heaven and earth and move you in a direction where that's going to happen. But you're going to find that there's a delay because you're not being faithful. Do you show up on time? Do you do your job? Do you contribute your best to that job, to that opportunity? Well, they don't pay me enough. That, again, is not my question. My question isn't do they pay you enough. My question is, is are you doing it? Because that's what heaven values. Heaven values your best. Not your perfection, your best. The best that you have to offer. 
When you're there, are you dinking around on a computer for 45 minutes an hour? Are you actually doing any, some kind of contributable or measurable work? Just a thought. I realize not every human being can work 20, you know, 60 minutes in an hour. It's, it's not realistic. But the, the point is, is like if they were to measure what you contribute, are you contributing something meaningful? Or are you pretty much taking every, every opportunity you can to just screw off? Again, my point to you is heaven sees. And the reward, our reward comes from heaven. Exactly. Joseph was an immigrant in a foreign land, and he was working for slave labor. Can I get a witness here in Miami? <laughs> Lots of migrant people in foreign lands, foreign languages, and most of the time, that type of person is forced into a low-level, low meaningless job. But you don't have to stay there. God will let you, we have, and we have the glorious gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is the God of the elevation. He's the God who takes the weary from the ashes and sets them among princes. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just, like, he's not casting pearls before swine. He's not wasteful, you see. He's a wise investor. He expects a return. And he doesn't waste it. He looks for good ground. And he looks for character that can sustain what he has to offer. Again, I want to emphasize to you, not perfection. It has nothing to do with perfection. It has to do with intent and integrity. That's the point. He gets promoted. So he gets promoted. Now he's in charge of all of Potiphar's house. So a period of time goes by, and now he's sexually harassed. Say, how can a man be sexually harassed? <laughs> Not too many men are accusing women of sexual harassment. They're like, sexual harassment? Hey, you know, but Joseph was sexually harassed. And again, heaven was watching. He's passing all the tests. The Bible says that Joseph was beautiful and his face was handsome and he was, and he was uh, uh, what is it, wonderful in form. It means he had a good body. And he's walking around the house all day and Potiphar's wife, again, wealthy, he's working for wealthy people. She doesn't work. She's walking around, you know, in her little silk robes, walking around all day and she's seeing handsome Joseph with his beautiful face and form walking around. And she asked him like three times, lie with me, sleep with me. She wasn't saying, have dinner with me. <laughs> She's propositioning a guy probably in his early 20s by this time. Okay? Any guys out there in your early 20s, the hormones are raging. You know what I'm saying? The wind blows and you're ready to go. It's pretty much like that. <laughs> it's true. Just saying. <laughs> And so here's this woman propositioning a guy at that stage of his life. And the, he, the Mishnah, the, one of the Hebrew commentaries says that Joseph said, I can't do this because of my master. The Bible says that, but he also says it, or because God will see. And the, the Hebrew commentator says that she disrobed, hung her robe over one of the house gods and said, now he won't. And Joseph ran out the door and she held his tunic. She grabbed him by the tunic. She held his robe and he, she held it and he runs away. And then her husband comes home and goes, uh, your Hebrew slave tried to rape me today. Setback number four, falsely accused. <laughs> accused of something that he didn't do, put in a position that he didn't want, and he's in this position for no apparent reason at all. He didn't do anything wrong, yet he's falsely accused. He's not even tried. He, the Bible says Potiphar saw, was enraged. He didn't even try him. He grabbed him and threw him immediately in prison. Immediately. Didn't even ask him a question. Just grabbed him, threw him in prison. No release date. No trial. No sentencing. He's thrown into an Egyptian jail, and they're not like our jails. He's thrown into a hole in the ground, essentially. They're just like pretty much caves. They didn't care. You could rot and die in there. They didn't care. There was, no, there was nothing humane about it. And so he's thrown into an Egyptian prison, and he's given no release date. He could die in there. He, he, he was forgotten. Probably no record, of it, no record was, was made of him. Nothing. He's there. He's in there. It says, Potiphar's anger, burned with anger when he heard of his wife's accusation. He arrested him on the spot and threw him into the king's prison. That doesn't mean it's a better prison. It usually means you're an enemy of the state, so they're going to probably treat you worse. The king threw you in here, so there's a good reason why he threw you in here, so we know you're a dog. In jail, he gets promoted, and he helps a couple of guys out, so he's falsely accused. He loses his reputation. Anybody out there? Had false accusations given to you? Anybody out there, your reputation's gone? People said some things, did some things about you, something happened to you? 
right? Friendships, oh, you, you know, just lost his reputation. Falsely accused of something that he didn't do. He gets promoted in jail. He helps a couple of guys out. They tell him his dream. So basically it looks like this. The Pharaoh throws in jail uh, the, his wine, his cupbearer and his baker. That's what these uh, sort of monarchs did. They just kind of at a whim, they would arrest you. They were moody, you know? Moody, moody, moody. Herod killed a bunch of his wives. So did Henry VIII. He got tired of his wife, cut her head off. I'm, I'm just sick of talking to her. It's one way to end an argument right there. You know, it's like, I'm tired of talking about this. It's over. Guards take her and cut her head off. I mean, it's just kind of like that. Throw her in the tower. That's what they, they so at a whim. And so the, the, the king, uh, the, the pharaoh throws his cupbearer, his right-hand man, and, uh, and he throws the, the baker in jail, and they both have dreams. And so Joseph is cruising through the jail one day, and he sees them, and they're all down. He's like, hey, what are you guys down about? And they go, we both had dreams. And so he's like, well, the God can, my God can interpret dreams. Tell me the dreams. And so they tell him the dreams, and he looks at the cupbearer, and he goes, well, your dream means that in three days you're going to go back and serve the king. And so the baker's like, wow, that's good news. Let me tell you my dream. And so the baker tells him his dream, and he goes, well, your dream means that in three days you're gonna die, the, the, the pharaoh's going to cut your head off, hang you on a pole, and the birds are going to eat you. Not the news he was looking for. And so then he, and he goes, so while this guy's over here freaking out, he looks at the cupbearer, and he goes, so when you're restored, please remember me. Don't forget me down here, right? Tell Pharaoh about me. Get me out of this place. I'm in here. Nobody knows I'm here. Nobody knows where I'm at. I need somebody to help me get out of here. And it says, but the wine steward never gave Joseph another thought. What a nice guy. He forgot all about him. Have you ever helped anybody? Have you ever served people? And they forgot all about you, right? They just come and take everything you got. They don't, some, a lot of people don't even say thank you. It's true. Jesus heals 10 lepers. 10 lepers. I'm, an incurable disease. Are, there are 10 of them are healed of an incurable disease, and one came back. One. They left him, ran on their way, probably went right back out, living riotous lifestyles, beginning to live whatever way they wanted to. Woo, free now, okay. They didn't even say thanks, Jesus. And the Lord noted it. He said, were there not 10 of you? And only one of you takes the time to actually thank me for what I've done for you? It's one of the things the Bible says, that we are to be thankful for everything. Anything and everything, thankful at all times, because God is good. It's true. Amen. We give him thanks right now. That's right. We thank him right now. Amen. So if you've ever helped people and served people and gone the extra mile for people, and they haven't even looked at you and said thank you, well, first of all, I'd like to say welcome to my world, you know, and then secondly, no, I mean, I mean there's, most people are grateful, if, believers, but there, there are those who pretty much look at the church and look at Christians as a place that exists to meet their personal demands and personal needs and be at my will. You can't tell you how many people I've made mad because of, you know, my, I'm not going to say it. I will not say it. So it's betrayed by people you helped. So Joseph came to Egypt at 19. I want you to show you how this worked. He got a vision at 17. He came to Egypt at 19. He's been in Egypt for 26 years. 13 years serving Potiphar. 13 years in an Egyptian prison. Two, two stories of 13 years. Prophetic number of 13 is, this is interesting. You guys like prophetic people here, which we are. You know, that's a number. It's a very significant number. And what it means for 13 represents promise, and 13 represents government, civil government. And the reason that they say that is when Abraham, the Hebrews will take that word, Abraham was promised uh, Isaac, and it took 13 years, and the promise happened, right? So 13 years in between when God told Abraham and the time that he did. So they say 13 is the number of promise. Then you have the, the understanding of civil government, the Hebrew society. You guys liking this? You want me to keep you on this? Do you like it when I talk like this? Or you're like, yeah, okay. Because this, this is how I teach. So I'm just like, you know, we go in or we don't go at all. We go varsity or we just, we just don't even try. So the, the, the Hebrew government was based on something called a council or a Sanhedrin. And there were 24, 24 elders and one high priest. Same model as heaven, by the way. So you don't think on earth as it is in heaven is, is a significant thing? The entire structure of the Hebrew government was based on earth as it is in heaven. 
We have 24 elders and we have Jesus the high priest in heaven. On earth, there were 24 elders and there was to be the high priest on the earth. If they didn't, if they were in a city and they had a governing body, every governing body was to have a council and they didn't have 24 elders, they were to get 12, okay? So they could work with half. And so they were to get 12 elders with the high priest. So they would have 12 plus one is 13. And so 13 is again a number, it's a, it's a, symbol, it's a symbol of a lesser government. That's what it means. And so Joseph, after 13, 13, two 13s, he's about to inherit the promise and he's about to come into civil government or the rulership or the reign that God has. Very prophetic. God doesn't write that. It, nothing, is, nothing is by accident. It's all by design. So Joseph is about to enter these things. So the questions that I, I'm just going to leave you with this. We're just going to run through this. How did Joseph make it through? <laughs> How in the world did Joseph make it through? Nope, back. Wrong one. There you go. I got it. Is that right? Yeah, I'm right. Right? Am I right? I'm right. Number one, he didn't give up the vision. He didn't give up the vision. Paul was beaten, lost everything, stands in front of King Agrippa in rags and chains, and he says, I thank myself happy because I've been true to the heavenly vision. And I'd just like to tell you, there's a few of you in the room that you need to think yourselves happy. <laughs> it would do you and the world a good. You're happy. I know not everything's going right for you, but here you have a guy in rags and chains in the book of Acts standing in front of a king, coming out of a jail. Slink, 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 slink. Give an account for your life, Paul, and all that you've been doing. And he said, well, first of all, King Agrippa, I think myself happy. I am a fortunate man, not only because I know Jesus, but because I've been faithful to the heavenly vision. Joseph never gave up the vision. God had a vision. God made the promise. He didn't ask for the promise. The promise was given. It was given by decree. And so he knew that God gave this by decree. And he knew that if God decreed it, that he needed to be faithful. Joseph was raised in a Jewish home. He was raised with, with certain instructions. He knew about faithfulness. He just never had to practice it. You understand? Because he was entitled and indulgent, and his father fed his ego. He never had to practice what he was taught. That's why the Bible says, raise up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're older, they will come to it. Why? Because life will look, they will, the storms of life will cause them to look for an anchor. They may not need the anchor when they're living with mom and dad. They may not live the anchor when they moved out for the first 10 years, but when they get married, they have kids, they get a job, they have the pressures, they're going to need an anchor. And if you have trained them to faithfulness and to look to the Lord, they will revert to that. They will come back to it eventually. It will happen. God will be faithful. And so Joseph didn't need the faithfulness that he was taught until life taught him that he needed it. And so now, because life has taught him, Joseph has no choice but to practice that which he was taught because he had no support system. And so his anchor now became the Lord. And he realized, if God gave me this vision, he's going to bring it to pass. My job is to be faithful with what I can control, and God will bring the vision to pass. You can't give up the vision if God's given you a vision, you can't give up the vision. If he's told you something, if he's promised you a life of meaning and significance and future and hope, well, that's the substance of his vision. The actual vision itself can alter, but the substance of the vision remains the same. I, we have a friend, she was promised a gym. Oh, God told me a long time, I'm going to have a gym, I'm going to have a gym, I'm going to have a gym. I mean, this is like 30 years, like, this is talking like mid to late 80s. She's been talking about this gym. She never did anything with it. And when I've tried to explain to her, she's like, no, God's going to do it. God's going to do it. I'm like, this ship has sailed. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> but the substance of the vision is still there. It's not, it wasn't the gym that God was promising. He was promising you something of your own. He was promising you something of meaning. He was promising you something of significance. It wasn't the actual vision that you saw that God is attached to. God did not attach himself to a gym. He attached himself to a promise of meaning, of substance, and significance. Go back to God with the substance of the vision and let him give you a new vision that, that relates to those elements. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Some of you, you've been given a vision. You know, well, God promised me a car back in 1987 or 1995. <laughs> I haven't got the car yet. I'm waiting on that car. Well, they probably stopped making the model that he showed you. <laughs> <laughs> but the substance of the vision remains the same. 
He's trying to communicate value to you. He's trying to communicate a sense of possession and a sense of direction. Everything that he was trying to communicate in the vision still abides. That's what's still alive. The vision itself may have died, right? It may have passed. Some people I know have lost marriages, and the ex-wife is now remarried. Well, God told us we're going to get back together again. Dude, I think you might want to, like, you know, the substance of what he was promising you in that relationship still abides. But that actual relationship is, has gone off with the wind. You understand? What we need to do and what people get hung up on is they get hung up on, the, on, the, on, the, on the, the actualities of the vision and they don't understand that God communicates in substance. He communicates in value. He's not communicating in, in that. I've got to have that gym. God showed me that gym. God showed me that corner. He showed me that corner 10 times. That's the, that's the building I'm going to take. That's the big well, You know, that's not what he's telling you. It's important we understand this. Right? And so Joseph, Joseph um, honored God, and even though he was dishonored, that's the second thing. He honored others even though he was dishonored. This is important. Heaven looks at that. I'm going to tell you right now, you can't hold a position of influence. And listen, okay. I'm going to do my best to be as vulnerable as I possibly can. I hold a position where I speak a lot. Okay? I ha- God deals with me very directly on honoring when I'm dishonored. Because if I cannot honor when I'm dishonored, I disqualify myself or I put myself in timeout from the position that he has called me to hold. You understand that? It's very difficult as a human to not want to retaliate when you're attacked. Right? Or want to respond when you're taken advantage of. Or want to dishonor another when you yourself are dishonored. It's very difficult. Any pastor that says they got that zero, they don't know what they're talking about because they're human beings. Right? And we all have emotions. But what heaven is looking for me to do, he's like, if you got a complaint, Kevin, bring it to me. Complaints go up. And oh, I complain. And Jesus always listens to me. And you know what he does? He always responds, and he responds in the most beautiful ways. In the most beautiful ways. He'll let me get it all out. He'll let me rage. He'll let me stew for a few days. He'll let me do that. And he'll always answer me, if I'm willing to listen. I have to create the margin for him to talk back, and I have to recognize when he is speaking to me. And he will speak to you, and he will talk to you, but he will correct you. You cannot hold a position of honor if you dishonor those who dishonor you. You can't do it. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Right? That's the whole point. And if you want God to give you an honored position, you cannot dishonor those who dishonor you. Take it from me. Okay? And if you think, oh, people think, oh, this is so easy. Oh, I could do that. Dude, you have no idea. No idea. When you stand in God's, when you stand where God has called you to stand or where God has put you, you're going to get hit at the deepest levels. And the devil's going to go, okay, big boy. Let's see if you can handle it. Let's see if you can handle it. You are not to dishonor when you are, when you are not to dishonor those when you are dishonored. Heaven, he knows God's economy and he knows the word. And so he's going to go, let's provoke Kevin and see if he will dishonor when he's dishonored. Because he's going to try to disqualify you from the vision. You can't really disqualify you, but what it does is it moves you off of the vision. And then you have to repent and then recenter yourself in the vision. It costs you time. And time's not something we all have a whole lot of. Okay? You understand what I'm trying to tell you? And so Joseph honored when he was dishonored. He valued and depended upon the presence of God. Four times in the book of Genesis, four times in Genesis 39, it says the presence was with the Lord, or God's presence was with Joseph. Four times in one chapter. It's basically saying this is one of the keys to Joseph's success. Giving us the keys to a guy who goes from the palace to the pit to the palace to the prison, to the palace. I mean, that was Joseph's ride. I mean, he had to go, what in the world's going on here? But in the end, he succeeded. And in the end, history knows him. And in the end, value was brought through his life. God, everything God told him, a life of meaning and value and substance, God gave to him. He valued and depended upon the presence of God. Say that with me. There's power in, in the presence of God. Favor flows from the presence of God. Favor comes not by men. 
Favor comes from the presence of God. You get in the anointing, get in the presence of God, and go walk around with the glory of God on you and see if you don't have favor. People are going to be nice to you just because they want to be nice to you. They're going to be like, I'm here. Have an extra donut. I don't know. There's just something about you. I just, you know. (laughs) Jesus didn't cause the circumstances, but he uses it. And the fourth thing is he trusted in the goodness of God. He relied on the presence of God. Listen, man, the world will rock you. The peace that passes understanding isn't a state of mind. It's a state of presence. So when the world rocks you and blows it up, well, you just need to have the peace that passes understanding. Think happy thoughts. Think happy thoughts. Think happy thoughts. (laughs) You don't need to think happy thoughts, man. You need to get in the glory. Because that's where the power is. That's what will calm the storm, is being in the glory. He, that's the, how in the world can you, can you deal with being in an Egyptian prison for 13 years? How can you deal with that? How can you deal with being falsely accused? How can you deal with that? Yet Joseph didn't dishonor even though he was dishonored. How can you deal with that? Being sold by his brothers and in the latter part of his life he honors his brothers. Are you kidding me? He's in a position to kill his brothers and he doesn't do it. Dude, he could have exacted all the vengeance he wanted. He could have said, I'm going to kill y'all, and it's going to be long, and it's going to be slow. You know what I mean? And I'm going to enjoy it, especially you. <laughs> he trusted in the goodness of God, and he looks at them, and he tells them at the end of his life, and he tell, or when they came to him, and he says, listen, what you did for evil, God did for good. He knew that no matter, this is, this is an important understanding, that no matter how evil the circumstances were that were against him, and no matter how evil the people were that had done this against him, Jesus was good. He knew this. And that no matter what it looked like, God was going to turn this into something good. He didn't know how. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know, like, the circumstances, but he knew the outcome was going to be to his good. He knew it. Because that's how he's able to look at his brothers and go, you know, what you wanted to do was bad, but God actually wanted to do something good. And I knew it all along. Now I'm realizing it. You have to trust in the goodness of God. God's for you even when it doesn't look like it. Everybody else can be against you. Jesus is for you. He loves you. And he's happy to see you. You say, why is he doing this to me? There's nothing being done to you. God does not bring the circumstances. He allows them in his providence because he's going to use them. He's going to use them, but he doesn't put those circumstances on you. There's a whole lot of reasons for that. He humbled himself and he recognized and he stepped into the moment. This is important. See, like I told you, for every setback, there's a comeback. The wheel will time will come back. The opportunity will present itself for you to have a comeback. It's inevitable. Bible says the race is not to the swift, nor is the battle to the strong, nor does favor come upon the skilled. But time and circumstance happens to all. In other words, what it's saying is those who succeed understand the moment and understand the circumstance, and they, they act wisely in the moment and in the circumstance. You're all going to get opportunity. Life is full of opportunity. Just because you failed here doesn't mean there's not an opportunity for you. Just because you had a loss here doesn't mean there's not another opportunity. Just because you made a bad decision here doesn't mean there's not going to be another opportunity. You will have another opportunity. It will come. He humbled himself. He recognized the moment, and he stepped into it. The Bible says that Joseph shaved. Pharaoh called for him. So Pharaoh has a dream. He has a vision, a nightmare. And the cupbearer goes, oh, uh, Pharaoh, there's a dude down in your prison you know, maybe like seven years ago, he interpreted this dream for me. Um, you might want to check. I don't know if he's dead or not. You might want to go down there and look and see if he's there. And if he's there, you know, bring him up because I think he can interpret your dream. Pharaoh calls from him. The Bible says he's made, he was brought with haste. But before Joseph would appear before Pharaoh, he shaved and he changed his clothes. To shave is, to, is, a, is a, this is again, it's this Hebrew narrative. It means he humbled himself. Jews didn't shave. In that culture, you were considered a slave if you shaved. And so what Joseph did is he what? He presented himself as a slave. That's what he did. He presented himself as a servant. And it's like one of the lasting proofs or one of the last telltale signs that Joseph had reached a place of humility and he'd raised a place of character where he was no longer dictating terms to people and he no longer had an ego where he was better than everybody and he looked down on everybody. He now shaved and presented himself as a servant. He humbled himself, and he recognized the moment. He's like, this is my moment, and I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to blow this up with pride. I'm not going to blow this up with ego. He humbled himself, and he went in, and he stepped into the moment. Pharaoh made him second in command. 
and his dream was fulfilled. He tells Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh's like, man, who in the world is this? And he gives Joseph the job of overseeing the country. Pharaoh takes his ring off and says, here, have my ring. Puts a chain on him, says, somebody get this man an Armani. Put a suit on this guy. He's in charge now. You know, they put him in charge. Why? Because he, and and you know what's crazy? Joseph didn't know what he was doing. Didn't know what he was doing. All the time of preparation had led him to this moment, and now he's in charge of something greater than he could ever possibly imagine. And what I would say to you is this, Jesus will be faithful to the vision. Will you be faithful in the setbacks? That's my question. Setbacks are inevitable. And again, I'm just going to come up against church culture. We pretend like setbacks don't happen. We're shiny, happy people. Nothing ever goes wrong. On the joy of the Lord at all times. Setbacks are going to happen. The Bible says in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I've overcome the world. And it tells us this is that which, which overcomes the world. What is that? Trusting in the promises of God, our faiths. And will you move towards a comeback? So we're going to pray right here. Jesus will be faithful with the vision. Will you be faithful in the, will you be faithful in the setbacks? Will you endure and stand and move through this situation well? And will you regain the courage to step into the moment when God presents the opportunity for a comeback? That's the question. And let's pray. So Father, we just thank you for this morning, God. I thank you for these beautiful people. Lord, I bless them. I pray encouragement, I pray hope, I pray strength into their hearts this morning. I pray a vision of a new reality, God, and a new hope and a new vision. Everything that is lost is significant to what has been gained. And so, Father, we just honor you for that. And, Lord, these are a visionary people. Young men will dream dreams, old men will see visions, Father. So we just release dreams and visions in this place dreams of a better tomorrow, dreams of a better hope, dreams of a better future, dreams of a calling. And God, I release substance in this place, Father, that the people would have the substance and that they would know the commitment that is required to step into this. They wouldn't be moved by the setbacks. They wouldn't be moved. And they go, ah, this happens to everybody. Yeah, this hurts. Yeah, this is painful. I'm going to get through it. I will not die. I will live. And so, Father, we just thank you for that. And we honor you. And may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may he be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.